This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500 CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Vladimir Putin declaring martial law over land that he really doesn't even have control over. He declared martial law in the four regions of Ukraine that Moscow annexed. The regions we're talking about, Donetsk, Kherson, Luhansk, Zaporizhia. But they're running out of manpower. They're running out of ammunition. But he is still declaring martial law. This is Vladimir Putin. So the next question is, what comes next? Joe Sorencioni is the author of Nuclear Nightmares, Securing the World Before It Is Too Late. He is also, of course, a national security analyst. Joe, thanks for being with us once again. Jeff, thank you for having me back. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, well, we knew we had to have you back on because, of course, Vladimir Putin is, I don't know, he's making some puzzling moves. For example, Mm -hmm. this past week. Declaring martial law in parts of Ukraine that the Russians really have not secured at this point. How do you explain this? Yeah, it's hard to declare martial law over territory you don't actually control, but that's what he's doing. And for some Ukrainians, they might be asking, what's the difference? Putin has been torturing, murdering, raping, deporting, and brutalizing in countless ways Ukrainians ever since the occupation. We see what it looks like when the Ukrainians liberate cities like Bukha and Liman. I mean, just the awful conditions. So what does it mean to do martial law? How does that change things? Well, I think there's three things going on. In one way, he's just legitimizing the brutal military occupation and just tearing off the illusion that the civilians in these occupied territories, his installed puppets, actually have anything to say about this. Two, um, it's a way to signal to his ultranationalist base 
in Russia, who's very upset with his conduct of the war, that he's waging an aggressive war, that he's pulling out the stops, and then he's, he's going to win. And that is an increasingly shaky proposition. And number three, it may be related to uh, the imminent Russian loss of Hershan, this big city in southeast Ukraine, right above Crimea, which the Russians captured early in the war. And it looks like the Ukrainians haven't been encircling and isolating the Russians in there. And uh, just uh, a few days ago, the then the civilian administrator of that region started to order the uh, Russian citizens to evacuate. And by declaring martial law, you may be able to now put the military behind that and force people to leave. So people who don't want to leave Hershon, not just the Russians, but the Ukrainians, you now be able to lump them in with the 1.5 million Ukrainians you've already forcibly deported. So I would say that's what's going on with that martial law declaration. It seems to me, and of course, I'm, I'm not the expert on this issue, but as I watch what is unfolding and how Putin and the Kremlin are reacting, it seems to me that he's playing to this domestic audience solely, mm. trying to get people in Russia to believe that they are winning. When, you know, based on our reports here at CBS News and other reports, the Russians are really losing ground, losing this war uh, in many respects. What do you think? Absolutely. There's no question Putin is losing this war. It is very hard to see a path to victory given what he's got and what he's done. He has a remarkably consistent record from the very beginning, from his pre-invasion threats all the way up to this declaration of, of martial law and his drone attacks on the uh, population centers of uh, Ukraine. Everything he's done has produced the exact opposite results of what he intended. You know, his invasion of attempt to seize Kiev, a miserable failure. His fallback to defensive lines in the Donbass region, a failure. His attempt to mobilize the 300,000 Russian men, a failure, making divisions worse in his domestic base, as you point out. And so in this case in particular, he's got a real problem here. There are fissures opening up in his regime that we haven't seen in a very long time since some of the mass protests um, in, in the beginning of uh, this century. And he's got the public now upset about this. If you were living in St. Petersburg or Moscow, this war was a distant news story. It didn't affect you. Well, guess what? Now it's coming home because your sons and husbands, and in some cases, grandfathers, are being swept up, literally kidnapped from the streets of Moscow and pressed into service, sent to the front lines, and they're dying now. The first casualties are being reported. And if you're the ultra-nationalist base, the one he really cares about, you're questioning, as you see from the, what they call the mill bloggers, these people who go up and, and comment on this, supporting the war. They want to occupy Ukraine and they're furious that Putin is losing this war and that he doesn't fire his generals. He just shuffled his command. He put a new guy, Sergei Sorovkin, Sergei Sorovkin, who's the... Uh, Butcher of Syria, put him in command. And I think some of the drone strikes you're seeing are his version of the strategy. So he's trying to uh, 
to, to not lose, which I don't think he can do, but more importantly, convey the impression at home that he's actually winning. And if you control the media space in Moscow and Russia the way he does, you might be able to get away with that part of the strategy. What about these kamikaze drone strikes? Have they been effective? Yes. And that's the problem. First of all, we should recognize this is a war crime. For over 100 years, it has been against international law to deliberately target civilians or civilian infrastructure. Now, people violate this, but that doesn't mean it's not a war crime and that this is a war crime added to the list. Number two, he's doing this in a very unusual way. Western intelligence estimates that he's already exhausted about 70% of his supply of long-range precision strike weapons, cruise missiles, guided ballistic missiles, his own drones. So he's down to a very small supply. So where's he turning? He's turning to Iran to get something that they have. It's called the Shahid-136. It's an Iranian-produced drone. It's basically like a giant model airplane. It carries about a an 80-pound conventional warhead, and it has a 1,000-mile range. So he's launching these things from Russia, from Belarus, into the city centers. Why? One is to try to terrorize the population, break morale. The history of strategic bombardment going back to World War II and Korea and Vietnam tells us that doesn't work. You don't break a country's morale that way. And I think Putin has learned, you know, has to relearn that lesson. But More importantly, he's targeting the power plants, the electric and heating supply, and there he's being successful. Ukraine says that he's already destroyed about one-third of their um, generational capacity. This is brutal for the Ukrainian people as winter comes on. Winter is coming, and Putin wants to weaponize the weather. He wants to make the Ukrainian people suffer in the hopes that they will break or the Western support for them will break, or that U.S. support will break. So that's the game he's playing. And to me, the answer to that is that we should be rushing in electric power generating equipment right now. We sh- electric generators should become the new HIMARS, the new Javelins. We got to get stuff back online by December, January, or there's going to be real suffering in the, uh, the population centers of Ukraine. The fact of the matter is... Vladimir Putin, he's unpredictable. He he is the kind of leader in Russia where you just can't trust him. You can't trust what he says. You know, he's demonstrated over and over again that he is he is someone that you cannot take lightly. And in fact, you've written about that in the Washington Post around the time that he was making these nuclear threats. You wrote that we should take him at his word. And it seems to me he's running out of options in Ukraine. Does this nuclear threat become even more of a concern for the Biden administration now? Yes. And this is one of the reasons you're having me on today. This is real. 
This nuclear threat is real. He has the means to do it. He has hundreds of tactical nuclear weapons that he could fit onto the weapons he's already using to attack Iran, the cruise missiles, the Iskander missiles. They are nuclear-capable systems. You could put a Nagasaki Hiroshima-sized bomb on those weapons and cause tremendous damage. Number two, he's got the method to do it. Russian military doctrine allows for the first use of nuclear weapons in a conventional battle in order to turn the tide of battle. Number three, he has the motive, he's losing. And at the point comes where he feels that he will lose, and that might mean he loses power in Moscow, and that might mean he loses his life, he may push the nuclear button. But I think the odds of him doing that are actually quite low. So you can hold these two distinct thoughts. This is extremely dangerous. We're closer to the intentional use of nuclear weapons now than we have been since the terrifying days of the Cuban Missile Crisis 60 years ago this month, and it's unlikely. And one of the reasons it's unlikely is that this is not the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is not a compressed showdown. There isn't going to be a Soviet trawler running up against a picket of U.S. destroyers being told to stop, and Khrushchev has to decide whether he's going to launch or not. This is playing out more slowly, and that, I think, whether by intention or, or circumstance, works well, because while he's losing, he's losing slowly. So you, it really is the ideal situation where you want Putin in that pot of slowly boiling water where it never gets hot enough to have him make the nuclear leap, but it does get hot enough to eventually cook him. So there's no point where he thinks he has to make this choice. And here you got to give the Biden administration credit. They're handling this very well. They are not provoking him. They are not answering his nuclear threats with nuclear threats of our own. They are carefully limiting the kinds of weapons we give Ukraine so it doesn't escalate. And they are making sure that this crisis doesn't get to a point where Putin does get desperate enough. That means in the end, as he starts to lose, you do have to open a door for him. You've got to find an off-ramp. That time isn't now. Ukraine doesn't want to negotiate with Putin. Putin doesn't want to negotiate with, with Ukraine. But as the winter months develop, we may see a change in that situation. And I think Ukraine and America have to be ready for that. Well, let's talk about that some more. Why not? extend an olive branch now to bring down the temperature and start negotiations? Is it because Russia is still trying to advance in Ukraine and you risk giving up this Ukrainian territory? Yes. This, so this, the two main players of this are not the US and Russia. It's Ukraine and Russia. And right now, neither one of them wants to negotiate. Putin is still hoping he can drag this out. He wants to get through the winter. He, that's his play. Ukraine is advancing. They're not advancing rapidly. So that's why I mean there's no imminent possibility of a break in the Russian army where it just collapses. They're advancing like tens of kilometers, not hundreds of kilometers at a time, but they are advancing. And so they don't want to stop that initiative. Because remember, it's not just occupied territory we're talking about. It's occupied people. So there are millions of Ukrainians suffering from this brutal rule. You can't ask Ukraine not to try to liberate them, especially when they think they're going to win. Now, as any diplomat will tell you, you have to have conditions for negotiations. It is, you can't just put a 
a, a, a blanket, you know, open-ended proposal on the table. The sides have to be willing to come to the table. Neither side wants to come. But that is going to change. And you could be laying out now. You could be doing a little more, talking in general terms about a negotiated settlement, not going over the head of the Ukrainians. Some of my colleagues want the U.S. to cut a deal directly with Russia. That would be a mistake. But sort of setting the groundwork. And I, I, I have to believe, I bet there is... There's stuff going on in the background. Remember, we've had intermediaries here like Turkey, like France, um, and others who have been having back-channel talks with the Russians and the Ukrainians. So that's going on. It's just not the moment now where the parties are willing to come to the table to do it. But I believe that will change in the winter months. What about Iran's role in providing the Russians with these drones. Absolutely despicable. Yeah, well, and, and then in, in terms of this nuclear deal, right? it seems like that's on hold. Oh, absolutely. And it, I, it is. I've been a strong proponent of that deal because I think it's in America's security interest to stop Iran from getting a bomb, which that deal did, and stop a new war in the Middle East, which that deal did. Uh, but this is not the time to push that deal. Uh, we made a very good offer to the Raisi regime, the, the hardline president of Iran. He rejected it. I bet you he's thinking twice about that rejection now that he's beset with his own problems, his own mass protests, the likes of which we haven't seen in, in decades in Iran. But they have clearly made a choice. Like uh, the leader of Saudi Arabia, like MBS, they are blocking with the Russians. You know, uh, Saudi Arabia does it on oil prices. Iran is now doing it on arms exports. And these drones are, are pretty good. They're slow moving, but they if you launch, you know, 10 of them, one might get through, two might get through, and that's enough to do the damage. Iran is denying that they are supplying this, but we have reliable reports that Iranian operators and trainers are now in Crimea training Russians on how to use them. Ukraine is moving to break relations with Iran. Iran just announced they want to talk to Ukraine about this. But uh, I, I think this is a point where the U.S. should be thinking of further actions we could take. The U European Union should be talking about sanctions, further sanctions we could take on Iran to punish them for this. We can't just let them get away with this. We can't let this axis develop. Well, is has it already developed? If you know, I was just writing down the, the list of countries backing Iran or backing Russia, excuse me. You have China on that list, you have Iran on that list, you have Saudi Arabia on that list. Uh, is an alliance uh, already in place against the West? This is Putin's goal. And this is what he's been working on for 20 years to build up and sort of an axis of autocrats. And he's doing it with Europeans like Viktor Orban in, in Hungary, for example, or aiding Le Pen in France. So it's this is sort of his global strategy. And he's been making alliances of one kind or another with countries like Syria, came to the rescue of Assad, uh, like Iran. Uh, so yes, this, this is there. Interestingly, this war, again, 
the opposite result of what he intended. It's breaking some of these alliances. Some of his strongest bonds have been to the border nations, the former Soviet republics in Central Asia, like Belarus and Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, uh, etc. And those bonds are, are fraying. Some of these countries have declined to have joint military exercises with Russia. Belarus refuses to enter the war on, on Russia's side. You see a fight breaking out with Armenia and Azerbaijan, which normally the Russians would have broken up. They promised their neighbors that if you, you know, follow my political and diplomatic lead, I'll provide you with economic and security benefits, which he's no longer able to supply. So interestingly, you're seeing this, this alliance that he's been working on for 20 years, not expand, but be, be stressed and tested in, in different ways. Iran, I think, has made a foolish choice here to go closer to Russia at a time when, his, when Putin's fortunes are actually declining. How did Belarus stay out of this? Because uh, my memory is correct, at the start of this conflict, didn't they allow the Russians to stage on their land? Yes. And so that's the compromise. So remember, the dictator of, uh, of Belarus, Luchenko, is, is highly unpopular, is facing his own unrest in there, and Putin has backed him. So this guy is dependent on Putin for the survival of his regime, and still he's drawing a line. He's allowing the basing. He allowed some of those those forces that originally in, invaded from the north that took the Chernobyl region, that took tried to attack Kiev. They came out of Belarus. Well, they're all been pulled back, all been moved out. He still allows artillery, cruise missiles, drone strikes to be fired from Belarus, but he's not sending his troops. He's not mobilizing the Belarusian male population. He's not sending Belarusian troops. He's, he's drawn the line there. He's trying to give Putin enough, but not drag Belarus into this war. Uh, that's a very delicate dance. We'll see how he does. We'll keep watching the situation in Ukraine. Joe Serencioni, author of... Nuclear Nightmares, Securing the World Before It Is Too Late, and he is also, of course, you know by now, a national security analyst. Joe, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Jeff. Always a pleasure. The mother of George Floyd's daughter has filed a $250 million lawsuit against rapper Kanye West following his recent comments about George Floyd's death. He spread falsehoods, according to George Floyd's family. What he has said is that Floyd's death was as a result of fentanyl use. That's not true. That's not a fact. So the fact that Kanye West went out there and said this, it's upset the family. They are trying to protect his legacy. Joining us now are the attorneys representing George Floyd's family, his daughter. The attorneys have filed a $250 million lawsuit against Kanye West for comments about George Floyd's death. So here we have Kay Harper-Williams, Nauru Witherspoon, and Pat Dixon, who has represented Roxy Washington, the mother of Gianna Floyd. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you for having us. All right, Pat, tell us about Roxy Washington, the mother of Gianna Floyd, and the kind of pain these comments have caused the family. Uh, thanks for having us. Uh, Roxy is devastated, um, you know, and she feels very, very 
deep compassion for her daughter, Gianna. Um, Gianna's young age, she's eight years old, and she's having to relive this trauma um, once again. The worst part of her young life is now back in the media in such a hateful way. And so she's in pain. Gianna's in pain. Um, not only to have to relive this, but also have to relive some of the um, hateful comments that the public is saying towards them, sort of in support of Kanye West. And so they're struggling right now, but this is why we're pursuing this lawsuit. What specifically did Kanye West say that is has offended the family? It is well settled that George Floyd was murdered. So to state anything um, or suggest anything to the alternative is highly offensive, highly inflammatory um, and harmful, you know, extraordinarily um, insensitive and and even outrageous. Um, There have been two trials. Experts have opined, a medical examiner, you know, and, and other medical experts have weighed in on his cause of death. And Derek Chauvin was convicted of murder. So to suggest anything different is absurd. And um, that's what the family is offended by and hurt by. So here, here we have Gianna Floyd, an eight-year-old little girl who just celebrated her father's birthday. And days later, she's being re-victimized, re-traumatized um, by having to relive this in, in a way that um, no one should have to, particularly a child. Some of the hosts of the show where Kanye made these comments, they're apologizing now. Nuru, does that affect the status of this lawsuit? No, it doesn't. Um, an apology uh, is great. But, you know, as uh, most people living in America know, you know, once you break the law, you know, you can't come back and say, hey, I'm sorry for breaking the law. The damage is already done. And I think that it's important to note that, you know, in addition to, you know, George Floyd's daughter being re-traumatized, you know, the the name and likeness, an image of, of, of George Floyd is being used um, for Kanye West and his camp's profit. And they're doing that without permission. So it's important to talk about the intellectual property rights that George family, his estate, Gianna Floyd, that they own. And, and Kanye West, or and, and for that matter, uh, nobody, you know, has the right to use his name and tell lies about his estate for their own profit without the permission of the estate. Pat, how much, let me put it this way, has Kanye West's recent anti-Semitic comments and some of the other controversial things that he's said and done. Is that at play here in this lawsuit as well? So those those comments, I think, are important, at least to the extent that it paints a picture um, about Kanye and his business strategy to use people's pain for his profit, to make controversial marks, remarks, uh, for his benefit. For example, he has a conservative platform called Parler that just raised $60 million. And so I think the anti-Semitic comments, the comments about um, slavery, the Holocaust, and including the comments about George Floyd uh, that, that we're here for, 
Um, I think those are a part of his marketing strategy, strategy, I'm sorry, to, to benefit himself. Jay, what do you think? Do you agree that this is part of Kanye's strategy or is it just Kanye being the new Kanye and not really putting much thought into what he says? So listen, you know, um, celebrities of, of that stature um, and, and others who, who haven't risen to, to Kanye's uh, status and, and celebrity stature are themselves a brand. And th- these statements, you know, their actions tend to not be accidental. We believe that the wearing of the White Lives Matter shirts with Kanye and Candace Owens, um, that Kanye is reportedly in the process of purchasing parlor from Candace Owens' husband. And these inflammatory statements are, are coming out on the Drink Champs platform is all part of what Mr. Witherspoon has suggested, which is an effort to profit, right? To, to raise, put attention on Parler, a struggling social media platform. I believe it has something like 50,000 users a day compared to hundreds of millions on even the more moderately sized platforms, Twitter and Snapchat. You know, we won't even discuss Facebook and Instagram. So he's been banned on other sites. Um, has lost access to, to some of the other um, social media platforms. So he's looking for a place to spew this venom. I, we believe that it's absolutely intentional. So so his intentional infliction of emotional distress on our client is, is just that. It's intentional. Why 250 million? Why that specific number? I'll, I'll talk about that. I think sometimes the, the number uh, can be a distraction you know, to the uh, issue, you know, the issue is Gianna Floyd, you know, the issue um, is, it, it is about free speech, but it's also about the limitations on free speech. And what Kanye West is doing is, is damaging to Gianna Floyd personally, her mother, but it's also damaging George Floyd's estate. We think George Floyd's estate is worth billions. And we believe that. And as you know, when when George Floyd was was murdered, it had an impact throughout the entire world. Everyone that watched that murder was impacted by it. And so George Floyd has become a symbol of justice, social injustice. And to use his name, uh, to, to benefit uh, his business of him. And when I say t- Kanye, for Kanye to use the Floyd name to benefit his business. Uh, remember, Kanye, he says he's worth a billion or two billion. And so we think that that number is appropriate for the damage that he's done to the Floyd estate. We think that number is appropriate for the amount of money he's raised and continues to raise uh, for his own personal benefit and the benefit of his business partners and associates. Nuru Witherspoon, K. Harper Williams, and Pat Dixon, thanks for your time. Thank you. Peter Greenberg, travel expert extraordinaire, joins us now. Peter, how are you? You know what? All things considered, I'm surviving. All right. What does that mean? Are you in some exotic location? What do you mean just surviving? 
Well, remember, we've had a chaotic summer of travel with airports exceeding their capacity, uh, exceeding our patients, uh, stress levels uh, through the roof, airfares at, uh, I won't say all-time highs, but pretty high, um, hotel rates that are 23% above what they were three years ago, um, and with less service. Um, so we have this sort of a, a double-edged sword that we have pent-up demand, people determined to travel at any costs, I emphasize the words, at any costs, and at the same time, getting beaten up in the process. So it's, it's, uh, it's the best of times and the worst of times. All right. See, now, should we just end the interview right here? Because I was hoping that you were going to come on this program and say, hey, Jeff, now is the time you can find discounts all over the place as you plan your holiday travel. But it doesn't sound like that's the case. Well, you can find discounts all over the place if you redefine holiday travel, meaning uh, the fourth quarter is usually a much more slow-paced quarter in terms of travel volume. Fares tend to, to be lower across the board, whether it's airlines, hotels, cruise ships, rental cars, et cetera. Uh, but this year, as airlines were slashing their flights and their schedules, uh, even in the fourth quarter, every plane is full. So the law of supply and demand kicks in, and airlines are actually keeping fares at at much higher levels than they normally would. Now, having said that, as long as you can, you know, redefine what you consider Thanksgiving and redefine what you consider Christmas in terms of those time windows, you will see airfares drop, and in some cases precipitously, you'll see hotel rates drop, and cruise lines are already starting to discount. So there is hope. However, uh, airfares during the traditional Thanksgiving period from the Friday before Thanksgiving till the Sunday after it are up about 28% of what they were last year. And Christmas is worse. It's up about 52% over what it was last year, uh, not helped in part by, by the fact that Christmas this year falls on a Sunday, which means people are going to be traveling for longer periods of time over that holiday. Now, having said that, let me give you the good news. Uh, every year in this country, there are two weeks when it comes to travel that are known as the dead week. One dead week is the week immediately following Thanksgiving, and the other dead week, not surprisingly, is the week immediately following New Year's. Why are they dead weeks? Because the first dead week is when people are recovering from their dysfunctional family get-together, otherwise known as Thanksgiving. And the second dead week is when they're simply just recovering from New Year's. Uh, and if you take a look at the fare patterns, they drop precipitously. They go off a cliff. So if you want to move Turkey Day back a week, you will save a lot of money, stress, and crowds. And the same thing applies to if you want to do some serious family travel between, let's say, the 4th of January and the 11th of January, those fares are really reasonable. All right. That's worth keeping in mind. And, and thanks for giving us some good news. What about potential destinations? W what do you see on the map that could be fun? There's a lot of good news there, and that's because of the strength of the U.S. dollar. Not too recently, we saw the U.S. dollar on a par with the euro, which is the first time that's happened in five years. We've seen the dollar completely in charge when it comes to other currencies like the uh, uh, Argentinian peso 
or the South African Rand or the Turkish Lira, which is the best bargain of all, by the way. And of course, during the recent financial chaos in the United Kingdom, where they've gone through, I think, a new finance minister every week, the, the UK, the British pound, actually got as low as a dollar three at one point. It's come back since then, but not, it's still a bargain. So when it comes to the buying power of travelers to those destinations using U.S. dollars, it's a pretty good time to be traveling. I'm always interested in in where you're going to go, or at least where you're interested in traveling to, besides some of the countries that you've just mentioned because of the the strength of the dollar. Is, Is there any other destination? Oh, tons. You know, right now, there are over 1,500 different cruise ship itineraries where the average cost of your cabin is under $100 a day. Now, think about that. You can't afford to wake up in Cleveland for $100 a day because we haven't even factored in your meals. So now you add interesting itineraries, plus the cruise lines offering additional discounts in terms of onboard credits or free shore excursions, it becomes not just economically viable, it's a no-brainer. And now you take a look at those 1,500 itineraries, and now you're going to places that are not just the usual suspects of the Bahamas or the Caribbean, but you're looking at Western Australia. You're looking at you know places in the, in the Indian Ocean. You're, you're looking at what we call repositioning trips. There's about a 10-day trip over Thanksgiving offered by one cruise ship or cruise line, Norwegian, which averages out to $63 a day. And what they're throwing in, which by the way, in my book is a reason not to go on the cruise, for the reasons you'll understand immediately when I tell you, it's an open bar. (laughs) What do you mean that's a reason not to go on a cruise? Well, I like to remember my travels. (laughs) (laughs) I like open bars, though, I got to admit. Okay. (laughs) Uh, So, about these cruise lines, I suspect they're trying to get business back after the pandemic. They are. Uh, But here's the good news. We remember when the CDC issued the no-sale order and it ended cruise lines operating for over a year. And in that period of time, in order for them to resume operations, they had to comply with about 75 different new protocols, ranging from new ventilation systems to new dining protocols, shore excursion protocols, uh, medical facilities, protocols in terms of social distancing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And they did. And as a result, you know, when you hear stories, and by the way, you haven't heard of them recently, but about six months ago, you did of quote unquote, you know, COVID outbreak on a cruise ship. You have to use the word COVID outbreak in, in proper context. The largest number of COVID cases we've seen on any cruise ship over the last eight months was on a Royal Caribbean ship when you had 48 cases, most of which were asymptomatic none of which required hospitalization, and nobody died, but 48 cases on a ship that was carrying 4,300 people. That's a case rate of 1.5%. And anybody listening to us in their own homes and in their own home communities, if you had a case rate of 1.5%, you'd throw a block party. So they're doing a great job now. And so people who, especially if you've been vaccinated and boosted, there'd be no reason why you wouldn't take a cruise to a special destination, especially when you consider what the price is. 
I've talked to numerous people lately who are choosing to go to Iceland of all places. What's the attraction? Iceland is a gem. Uh, Iceland is uh, a small country that takes its environment seriously, that respects it, that also uses the environment in a responsible way. 80% of the electricity there is thermal from underground. That includes their heat. The food is unbelievable. Uh, The topography is uh, just remarkable. And uh, it's, it's a great destination and so easily accessible from the United States a flight from New York to Iceland is under four hours. Um, so it's it's easy to get to and relatively inexpensive because for those people listening to me who remember their days in college, Iceland Air was the way to go cheaply to Europe if you didn't mind changing planes in Iceland. And so that's how Iceland really got discovered by people looking for cheap airfares to Europe. Okay. I guess I'm going to have to put Iceland on my list. Peter Greenberg, thank you. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in District Productive. Don't forget to check your local listings to see when ACF airs in your community. For now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Changed Forever. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.